if that's something that you'd like to do. Well, let's turn in our Bibles together to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. This is on uh, page 72 in the pew Bible in front of you, if you want to use that. We're going to look at a, a short section of Exodus 32 this morning as we continue to think about prayer. Exodus 32, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 14 once everyone has a chance to get there. Exodus 32, starting in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I'd like to throw out to you a quick little true-false question. You don't have to answer out loud. just want you to think about it to yourself there. little true-false question. True or false, prayer changes things. True or false, prayer changes things. So, of course, we're in church on a Sunday morning, so we feel like I better say true or the people around me are going to find me after the service is over and say, hey, what's your problem? What's going on? We feel, sometimes we feel like we got to say true without hesitation to something like, like that. Prayer changes things. True, immediately. But think about it seriously and carefully. When we pray, does it cause something to happen? You might say, well, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But what makes the difference? When does it cause something to happen? When does it not cause something to happen? When prayer does change things, does that mean God isn't fully sovereign? Like he has most of the power, but then he's given a little bit to us so that when we pray, we accomplish something. Or does he pause his control over the world, take in our prayer for a second, and then change accordingly? If God is in complete control of the world, and he's already determined how everything in the world is going to happen, then why pray anyways? If he already has his perfect plan. Can you, can you feel the tension of this? You should, you should feel this. We, we, I don't want to just like sweep this away just because we, we should be able to think hard about things and ask questions and stretch our minds a little bit. I don't want to wipe it away with some hollow Christian answer and I don't want to put the truths of the Bible against each other because they're not. But we want to answer questions like these and think about prayer in a way 
that holds tight to the truth of Scripture and in a way that speaks into the real experience of our lives and our prayers. So that's why we've been, just started last week, going through this study called The Story of Prayer, where we're tracing this topic, this concept of prayer from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Last week we were in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, and we saw that prayer is a reply to God's promises. And as we look at this next step, I'm not claiming that I'm going to answer every question that I just threw out to you. There is a level of mysteriousness, and I think there, there should always be a level of mysteriousness to how we think about the Lord. But as we look at Exodus 32, our next step is to see this truth about prayer, that God's promises move forward through the prayers of his people. God's promises move forward through the prayers of his people. Some of you might be uncomfortable with that language. Might feel a little like, well, I'm not sure we should say it that way. That seems to have a small view of God. Or maybe you're confused by that language. But I, I pray and I believe that God's word will make it clear to us, not just the truth, but also why it matters for how we pray. We're going to walk through this short part of Exodus 32, and we're going to see how God invites, how Moses prays, and how we respond. So just three steps through this story, how God invites, how Moses prays, and how we respond as we think about God's promises moving forward through the prayers of his people. Let's look at the first one, how God invites. I know there's a big, giant gap of time from where we were last week in Genesis 4 to where we are this week in Exodus 32. I'm not going to go through every point of the timeline for you because we've skipped ahead to this next book, but I'll just give you the lay of the land for the book of Exodus. In this book, the people of Israel, now not just a couple families or a family, but a large, giant nation of people, they've been enslaved in Egypt under the powerful, powerful rule of Pharaoh for 400 years. And at a point, you can see this at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Lord hears the cries of his people. And it says, and the Lord remembers, meaning he remembers his promises that he's made to his people. Not that he forgot them, but that he decides to act. And he raises up this man named Moses. And he uses Moses, he works through Moses to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt through a really incredible circumstance and brings them in towards the promised land, not into the promised land yet. But a short time after that day that God so powerfully and mercifully saved his people out of Egypt, we come to this day in Exodus 32 where Moses and the Israelites arrived to Mount Sinai. And on this mountain, Moses is at the top receiving God's law of here's the Ten Commandments, here's instructions about the tabernacle, here's how my people are to worship me and follow me as my new people, the people of Israel. But at the bottom of the mountain, the people get impatient. And some of you, many of you may know this story already, but they say, Moses has taken a long time up there, and Aaron, the other leader besides Moses, is down there with him. Moses has taken a long time. We need to do something else. We need to kind of pivot here. This has taken way too long. So they bring all their gold together, and they decide to make an image of God, and they make this golden calf. And they worship God according to, and remember this part, this will be helpful for us as we go throughout the story. They worship God according to how they imagine him, not according to how he's revealed himself and is revealing himself to Moses up on the mountain. Moses doesn't know all this is happening yet, but the Lord knows it's happening. 
And he leads Moses to find out. That's where we pick up in verse 7. Let's look there together. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, meaning go down the mountain, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You're going to hear me say this multiple times, but as we go through this story, we have to be careful not to misunderstand what God is saying or how he is acting. We, we don't just need to put our perspective and our thinking and our feelings and our reactions onto God and assume that's why he's thinking or feeling or acting a specific way. Because it sounds like God's being grumpy or like he's pouting. He says, Moses, the, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt, they're totally falling apart down there. This is not the same as when a wife says to her husband, do you know what your son did today? This is not the same as that kind of situation. God speaks this way because the Israelites have rejected him. They bow down to a statue now, and they worship the statue and make sacrifices to the statue. And so the Lord tells Moses, these people have rejected me, and they don't think I'm their God anymore. They're not following me as I've told them to. And so here's what the Lord decides to do. Skip down with me to verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He says, Moses, I'm going to destroy the people of Israel and start over again with you. It's a really big statement. Moses, God tells Moses, I'm going to bring my wrath down on the people of Israel and start over with you. But then you might have caught this when we read through it at the beginning. Skip down to the end and see what happens. Verse 14, spoiler alert right here, if you, didn't, if you weren't paying attention at the beginning. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So verse 10, he warns Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to wipe out the people of Israel and start over again with you. But then fast forward to verse 14, he doesn't do it. God decides not to destroy the Israelites. And what happens in between verse 10, God saying he's going to, and verse 14, God not destroying them? What happens in between? Moses prays. Moses prays. This can look like God was really angry ready to wipe out his people, but at the last minute, Moses says, wait, don't. And God changes his mind and calms down. If we're honest, and this is why I was trying to get us to think a little bit at the beginning, if we're honest, these are the kinds of passages that leave us confused. Me too. And if you're a Christian, maybe even a little embarrassed. Like, why does this kind of story have to be in the Bible? These are the kinds of stories that turn people away from God, where he's talking about his wrath, and seems to change his mind. That's why I said earlier that we have to be careful not to misunderstand what God is saying or what he's doing. I don't think this is God changing his mind. There's passages in the Old and New Testament that tell us over and over that God is a God who does not change. So we want to see 
always see stories in the Bible in light of what the whole Bible teaches us. And so I don't think God is changing his mind. I think God is drawing Moses in and inviting him to pray. Why do I say that? Well, I'll show you just a couple reasons. One is in verse 7. When the Lord says to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The Lord tells Moses to go down the mountain to see what the people of Israel are doing. He does not have to do that. He doesn't have to tell Moses to go see it. He doesn't need Moses' permission to act. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, I want you to go see what's going on down there. Just make sure you're seeing it the way I'm seeing it. Because I'm about to wipe the people out and I want to make sure you think it's a good idea too. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't need Moses' permission. He's God. Moses is not. He could have told Moses, hey, Moses, pause real quick on the instructions I'm giving you. Just want you to know, when you get down to the mountain, it's just going to be you and Joshua. And just want you to prepare, prepare you for that. And we'll, and we'll, we'll get to that when, when we get to it. He doesn't have to do any of this. He doesn't need to be Moses. He doesn't need Moses to be aware of all this. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But I think, I believe, the Lord wants Moses to see what is happening because he plans to show mercy to his people through Moses' prayer for them, through Moses' intercession for them, through Moses' role as a mediator for them. God's promises move forward through the prayers of God's people. God in his humility works out his plans through the prayers of his people. And, and I think also when, when God says in verse 10, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. I think God is drawing prayer out of Moses. And then he moves to answer Moses' prayer. So God, I think God is inviting Moses. This is why I say how God invites now I want to turn to how Moses prays. I, I, they're inseparable. How Moses prays. Because how God invites him leads to how Moses prays. Moses prays in response to what God is telling him. And in this prayer, you're going to see Moses appeal to God's reputation and his promises. Moses doesn't start praying and just say, God, you know the people of Israel mean well. You know their intentions are good. And he prays talking to God about God not about the people. I'll show you what I mean with the reputation. Look with me in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord. He's he's begging, he's crying out. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? It's, It's interesting because Moses says to the Lord what the Lord said to him in verse seven. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And now Moses says to the Lord, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt? With great power and a mighty hand. And then here's the reputation part. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? Just to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Moses calls God by his, his personal name, Lord. We, we've talked about this multiple times. Lord, in all caps in your Bible, is God's personal name, Yahweh. That's his covenant name. That's the name that's connected to his character and to his promises. And he emphasizes that the Israelites are not just Moses' people, but they would never be Moses' people if they weren't first God's people. 
And they wouldn't be Moses' people if God didn't do what he did to rescue the people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses tells the Lord, God, if you wipe out the Israelites, you're going to undo the powerful salvation that you've brought about for your people. And the Egyptians are going to view you as just some evil God who just saved Israel only to destroy Israel. And so he prays for God's name to be honored. Think about what all that could have been going on through Moses' mind in this moment. God told Moses, I'm going to wipe out the people of Israel. I'm going to start over with you. That, there's some reputation for Moses at stake in that. But Moses doesn't say a thing about himself. He says, God, I want your name to be honored. I don't want the Egyptians to bash who you are. I don't want people to think wrongly about you, Lord. He knows God has rescued Israel out of Egypt so that his name would be worshipped among the nations, not mocked among the nations. And he wants his name to be worshipped. I think this is Moses' equivalent of what Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer when he teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. This is, this is the gist of what Moses is praying. He's jealous for God's reputation. He's passionate for God's reputation. He wants the Lord to be glorified, and that desire shapes how he prays. But not just God's reputation, also his promises. And you see that come up in verse 13. God's reputation and God's promises are shaping how he prays. Let's look at verse 13. Remember, he's still praying to the Lord. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. When Moses tells God to remember, he's not reminding something, God of something that he forgot. God does not forget. He never forgets. It's not like maybe you've had this experience, but when you tell your kids something, that, hey, can we do this later today or can we do that tomorrow? Yeah, maybe we'll get to it. Then that time comes, hey, you said we could do that. I said maybe. Personally, I just never say, I never talk to my kids at all anymore because I, I just don't say any words to them because all my words are constantly getting held against me all the time. Well, you said, I said, I said maybe, and that was like four days ago. I'm sorry. Give me some grace. But this is not God, Moses going to God. Mo, God, you said that. You were going to do this. This is not what Moses is doing. He's not telling him something he doesn't already know. Moses is asking God to keep remembering the promises he made. God, keep remembering your covenant. Keep remembering what you said to Abraham. Keep remembering what you said to Isaac. Keep remembering what you said to Jacob. And Moses knows all this because God told him this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, when God first appears to Moses in the burning bush, some of you will be familiar with this story. When God first appears to him, here's what he says to Moses. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's Yahweh, Lord. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses knows God's history. Moses knows Israel's history. He knows what God has promised, and he's pleading with God based on that promise. And so he says, Lord, if you destroy your people, your promises aren't going to come true. And it's going to make it look like you're not faithful, and I know you're faithful, Lord. Moses is praying to God based on what he knows is true about God. And this is the exact opposite of what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. Because at the bottom of the mountain, Israel is worshiping God based on their own imagination. But on the top of the mountain, Moses is praying to God based on God's revelation, what he's revealed to him about himself. Which one shapes our prayers more? How we just think God is supposed to be? Or how he's revealed himself to be in his word? Moses knows that God's reputation and God's promises are tied to this people. So he doesn't plead with God based on their morals. He doesn't plead with God on the basis of their intentions, but on the basis of God's reputation, on the basis of God's promises, on the basis of God's glory. And the result, as we just read a minute ago, is verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God is not outsmarted by Moses here. God is not persuaded by Moses to do something that's out of his character. He is, Moses is asking God to be who he is, to do what he said he will do. So Moses is not hijacking God's plan. He's actually fulfilling God's plan in this moment. Psalm 106 that's been uh, guiding our worship service this morning, it speaks to this very story. And I want to read to you verse 23 from Psalm 106. It's, it's always helpful to use the Bible to help you understand the Bible and find other places in the Bible where different stories are talked about and see how did, the, how did the, the authors in the Bible understand this story. And that's what's happening in Psalm 106. I'll read this one verse to you. This is uh, verse 23 of Psalm 106. This is talking about the, the deal with the, the golden calf. And it says, Therefore God said he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses, his chosen one, stood in the gap, stood as a mediator between them. So as we talked about last week, that prayer is asking God to fulfill his promises, crying out to God to do what he said he will do. Let this situation with Moses give us a a definition and experience of prayer with more dimension than, than maybe we're normally used to. That prayer is not just shouting words into the sky. Prayer is not just a coping mechanism. Prayer is not just a religious good luck charm. What Moses did and what God was doing is carrying out his plan and his purposes and his promises through the prayers of his people. And all of this leads to what God's calling us to do in the story and that's our last point this morning, is how we respond. How we respond. I just, like I did last week, I'm going to try each week to just give us, based on, this, based on this story, based on these truths, what difference should this make in how we pray? But I want to start by saying this. To be sure, we are not in the same role as Moses. God has not set us apart to mediate for his people and lead them through the wilderness. 
But God still moves his promises forward through the prayers of his people, just like he did in Moses' day. So just two practical encouragements from Exodus 32. There's a lot more that we could say, but just just two things this morning. The first one is this. When you pray, remember God's word. I know that sounds basic and simple, but most of the time the things we need are just reminders of the basic and simple. When you pray, remember God's word. Moses did not have a written, printed Bible in front of him. He was in the process of getting the tablets on the mountain, and when he comes down and sees what's going on, he breaks the things to show what the people have done to God's commands. He doesn't have a Bible in front of him, but he had received truth from the mouth of God. And God's words shaped how he prayed. Do you hear him praying God's words back to him? In verse 13 of Exodus 32, after he mentions Abraham and Isaac and Israel, he tells God, God, you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is praying God's words. And I know this story sparks a lot of questions. This story can spark a lot of discussion about whether or not God changes his mind, but isn't it fascinating? Isn't it interesting that in the passage that can make us think God changes his mind, the basis of Moses' prayer are on the truths of God that never change. God, God, Moses prays to God about the things that never change about him. God, this is who you are. This is what you've said. This is what you've done. This is who, this is who you'll be. So keep remembering these things, Lord. It may seem like from our perspective, God changes his mind. But Moses knows, and God is teaching us here, that his character and his promises never change, ever. So our starting point for prayer is immersing ourselves in the word of God. If we don't start with God in our prayers and how he's revealed himself, then our prayers kind of become wrapped around our own emotions and our own circumstances instead of wrapped around the truth of God's word. But we don't pray. We're not praying to create an experience. We're not praying to create a feeling. We pray in response to God and let that inform our experience and our feelings. This doesn't mean our emotions and our needs and our circumstances don't matter. I I think they do. We're praying as humans. And no doubt there was emotion in Moses' prayer. It says he implored the Lord his God. Moses was not a robot. He was a human. He was a person. And I wish we could hear the tone of voice that he prayed with. Because I think this was a prayer of desperation and need and crying out to the Lord. But Moses could pray with confidence in the midst of his own emotion and chaos. And he could pray with hope because he knew God's word and he knew God's character. Tim Keller said this about prayer, that prayer turns theology into experience. And this is what we're doing. I mean, prayer is where what we believe about the Lord, where the rubber meets the road. And how we pray or how we don't pray, and when we pray or when we don't pray is all determined by who we think God is. And if it's not coming from here, then it's not the true God. If it's coming from just our own assumptions, or our own, well, it just seems like this is who God should be. It has to come from here. It has to. So something that we can ask ourselves with this 
is are our prayers more God-centered or more human-centered? What I mean by that is, is that many of our prayers are all about us and our needs. While prayers in the Bible, like Moses' prayer, are all about God and his glory. I think it's good to pray for health concerns and, and medical issues that are going on. I think it's good to pray for money problems. I think it's good to pray for college decisions. And I think it's good to pray for job searches and lost friends and marriages and friendships and, your, and school. And I think it's good to pray for all those things. Because God cares about all those things. But we are to pray for them in a way that's built on God's truth and his reputation and his promises and his glory. So when we pray, remember God's word. And second encouragement, when you pray, trust God's work. When you pray, trust God's work. Just a real quick comparison. Once again, remembering God's word and trusting God's work, trusting God's work is the opposite of what was happening at the bottom of the mountain. They didn't remember God's word, and they weren't trusting his work because they said it was taking too long. So we want to relate to the Lord as he's revealed himself, not just in a way that fits our agenda and our imagination. So when you pray, trust God's work. This story teaches us, in part, how the Lord carries out his plan in our lives and in the world around us. It gives us a glimpse there. This is a very holy moment that we are privileged to step into. And I don't think this passage shows that God's plan is changing. I think it shows how God's plan is progressing, how it's moving forward. It shows how God works in the world. And we see here that God in his mercy and kindness wills to work through our imperfect prayers. What a gracious, merciful God. I don't claim to fully understand this, and I don't claim to be able to fully explain it. And if you have a God that you can fully understand or fully explain, that's not a God. It's a God of your own imagination, not a God of the Bible. But I do believe the Bible teaches our God is absolutely, completely sovereign over everything. And I think the Bible teaches that our prayers absolutely make a difference. God tells us to pray. Jesus himself prayed. There's example after example after example of people praying in the Bible. And somehow, in the mystery of God's greatness, he chooses to work through our prayers to carry out his plans and his promises. We can trust that he's working when we pray. We can trust that he's working when we pray. His timing is not our timing. His perspective is not our perspective. His desires are not always our desires. His will is not always our will. But we can trust that he's working when we pray. We also know that he is working because we have a mediator praying for us better than Moses. Moses, as you saw in Psalm 106, Moses stood in the gap between sinful Israel and a holy God. And we, as the people of God in 2024, we have a mediator by the name of Jesus Christ standing in the gap for us between sinful people like us and a holy God. And not only is he standing in the gap and pay for our sins on the cross and come back from the dead and ascend to heaven to rule and reign and bring his people back when he comes, but he also is praying for you and I right now. He is in heaven at the right hand of God interceding for us. 
What I love about that truth is that it means that the power of our prayers is not found in some technique, but in God's promises. The effectiveness of our prayers is not in our words, but in the work God is doing. Well, I just need to, I didn't pray that exactly the right way. Don't think it made it all the way up to God. I need to pray that a different way or say it a different way. No, we pray in line with his promises. We pray for his glory. We pray for his honor. We pray in line with who he's revealed himself to be in his word, and then we trust that he's working. God's promises move forward through the prayers of his people. So prayer changes things. Our prayers do not change God. Praise be to him for that. But our mighty and merciful and unchanging God plans to use our prayers to change the world, to change people, to change ourselves. Because it's all part of the good and perfect plan that he is working in our lives, in our hearts, and in the world around us.